My name is Taylor, and you're listening to Offerings, the podcast where we explore and embody practices of slow and holistic living in all aspects of our lives. Hello, everyone. Happy Sunday, and welcome to the first official episode of the Offerings podcast. Before we start, I want to address the fact that this episode is six days later than expected. As I was preparing the episode, I decided that, one, I wanted to spend more time to soak in the experience of my father's anniversary. And two, that I really wanted to start to share consistently on Sundays, which are my favorite day of the week and a time that I truly believe is meant for slowness and prayer, which is ultimately exactly what this podcast is intended to be. If you're tuning in after having listened to the introduction, you know that on this week's episode, I'll be sharing about an experience, an ongoing season of my life that has been all at once incredibly difficult and transformative for me. Last Wednesday was the one-year anniversary of my father's passing. My dad died three days after Christmas, on December 28, 2021, after being diagnosed with stage 4 bladder cancer about two months prior. I still remember the day I received the phone call from my brother, telling me that our dad had cancer. It was disorienting, to say the least because my siblings and I were actually the last to know. My aunts and uncles had known for about a week prior and had been attempting to support my dad, who at the time was, of course, incredibly ill and experiencing both physical and mental symptoms. I remember being so angry and confused after receiving that phone call and calling my dad immediately after, only to have him tell me that he was on his way to the hospital to be operated on that day and absolutely nothing more. The months that followed, from the initial treatment to the funeral service and finalizing affairs afterwards, were the hardest of my life. My dad was 58, and although his health had been visibly declining over the course of the year, Though it hadn't caused pressing concern or seemed incredibly out of the ordinary for us at the time, no one expected that he would die. The first few weeks of hospital visits were dedicated to planning and executing treatment. Trying to remember it all now is nearly impossible, honestly, as my memory is little more than a cluster of moments spent waiting in the hospital cafeteria and donning medical gowns. When my father was first released from the hospital, he had been brought to my aunt and uncle's house to prep for treatment until one night when he took a turn for the worse due to heightened calcium levels and a bad infection. The day that we learned no treatment would work, the day that we learned my dad would die, I think we were all already expecting it. Although my brother and I were the last to know of my dad's sickness, 
We were the ones responsible for making every decision in the following months since my dad was unmarried. During that time, I was especially fortunate to have my brother. I often felt like a child parading through doctor's meetings and organizing his affairs. As my dad's next of kin and power of attorney, my word somehow meant everything. And yet, as a 21-year-old who could hardly even feed, clothe, or transport myself at the time, I lacked the confidence to speak up. Looking back, I realized quite clearly that I was exactly that, a child. Not only parading through meetings and organizing affairs, but watching her dad die more and more each day. And I know now that my childhood ended the day that my dad died. I still believe that in a perfect world, there are many, many things that my family and I could have done better. But in this world, I recognize that each of us did the absolute best that we could at the time, even if sometimes that may be disappointing to accept. Although it's been a year, and one that I can truly say I've felt bend and mold me in undeniable and incredibly uncomfortable ways, it's still honestly so hard sometimes for me to believe that my dad is no longer here with us. I've spent the last year moving through seasons of deep grief, guilt, nostalgia, resentment, joyful remembrance, yearning, and so much more. Spring and summer of last year, 2022, directly following the burial and my almost immediate move away from my hometown in February were the hardest days for me. I often found that when I was at home for long periods of time without work, such as when I had COVID or during long holiday weekends, I would fall into depressive episodes where I simply could not get out of bed or off the couch or stop crying. The grief felt like an endless well, deep, bleak, and lonely, one of which at the time I couldn't picture myself ever finding a way out of. I'm certain that folks who have lost loved ones recognize that feeling very, very intimately. During those months in deep grief, I spent a great deal of time fixating on dying. I became incredibly interested in the work of a man named Stephen Jenkinson, who describes himself as a worker, author, storyteller, musician, and culture activist. Though to me, he really seems to take on the role of a death worker. He's the author of several books, including Die Wise, which he refers to as a manifesto for soul and sanity. Die Wise is about grief and dying and the great love of life. More than a simple fascination, the book and his work at large 
became a sort of devotion for me during that time. Engaging with it has been a process of learning how to be in right relationship with the dying, death, and my own eventual death, as these are all experiences of life. Another thing I've really loved about his work is that he often does podcast interviews to discuss his experiences and concepts more thoroughly. Recently, I was listening to the podcast Love and Liberation, where he was interviewed by Olivia Clementine. I'll be sure to link it in the show notes below. During their conversation, he shares a moment he had with a great storyteller and performer with whom he had once worked earlier in his life, who was reflecting on the death of his brother. In this moment, as the man was speaking to Jenkinson, he said, My heart is broken, and I never want it to mend. In his own reflection on the moment, Jenkinson explains that he was in awe of the sheer wisdom and bravery that lied in that statement. He shares that it moved the earth underneath him. The idea that you could be in the possession of brokenheartedness and not be hankering after the end of that brokenheartedness because the man understood so well that it was tied to his memory. And to lose something of his brokenheartedness would be to lose his memory. And his memory is what made him capable of undertaking the work that he did. I think about this story often as I reflect on what I consider might have been my dad's experience of dying and my own experience of witnessing. After my dad died, I felt like I was completely alone. While much of those feelings were self-induced, there's also a great deal to be said about the way I was able to notice how society receives, or really does not receive, those who are grieving. We live in a deathless society, which is to say we live in a society where the refusal of death is pervasive. People refuse to engage with death, shrink almost violently in the presence of those who are dying, and avoid grief and, by extension, those who are grieving. In the years since my father's death, I can count, perhaps on a hand and a half, the people who opened up to hold real space for conversation about my grief, or even earnestly checked in to see how I was afterwards. We don't ask, and because of that, grieving people internalize the idea that we should not tell. The reason why Jenkinson's story resonated so deeply with me is because I likewise do not want to lose my memory. Witnessing my father die, growing more deeply into myself, changed me in ways that were necessary. Likewise, I know there are many people that are sitting with or who have sat with grief and experienced their own metamorphosis. I want each of us to consider the last time we asked a grieving relative, friend, or even acquaintance how they were doing 
and truly held space to receive the answer. Like dying, grief is a natural and necessary part of life, and refusing to acknowledge it in ourselves and others does each and every one of us a disservice. Grief doesn't leave us because we go back to work or school, because a year has passed, or even because we want it to or believe that it should. In truth, while our experience with grief certainly evolves, it never truly leaves us. Frankly, I, like the storyteller Jenkinson shares about, don't want it to. I don't want to lose my memory. There's a portion of our story I've left almost completely untold here. That is, the days that followed after the doctors confirmed that my dad was going to die. I've spent weeks ruminating over what to say, how to fill this space, do it justice, somehow convey the thoughts and feelings I experienced during that time. And after all that reflection, I was only able to discern one thing that would even come close. I've been writing letters to my future daughter since I was 18. It's a practice I developed in part to soothe my own inner child, and also because keeping records for our future to find has always been deeply important to me. That is, in a sense, what this podcast is too. These letters are few and far between, only written in times that demand a certain sort of presence from me. Just a month and four days shy of my father's transition, I wrote one, and I'd like to end today's episode by reading it to you. November 24th, 2021. My father is dying. It has been nearly three weeks to date since I first learned that he was sick. What do you say to a dying man? Today I saw my mother and father in a room together by choice for the first time in 20 years, around 19 to be exact. I saw my father hold my mother, cry, and ask for her to return to a town of ghosts. I feel like I'm drowning. No one tells you that sometimes life feels like a dream, that it keeps going, shroud and all, that you can't wake up, that you can never wake up. I've been asleep for two decades. Grief is an unusual thing. I used to think that it was something that followed you through life until it didn't. I kept wondering why I never stopped grieving my grandfather, why I ached so deeply for a grandmother I'd never met, why I always felt lonely. Now my heart aches for you, for your brothers and sisters. I'm sorry that you will never know your grandfather. He would have loved you. He does still. My father was and is 
for however much longer God allows, a complex man. One day, I hope there will be time to tell you stories, to explain how heartbreak shatters more than just a heart and reforms a person into a new picture like shards of stained glass on church windows. For now, I will tell you about all the things I'm frightened to forget. I grew up in a beautiful place. Green grass paths wrapped around twin ponds in a small condo with two rooms. My father's room was red and orange. Colors of the sunrise over the savannah, or so I imagined. There was a tall, dark wood walking stick to the left-hand side, and in the center of the room, a large bed framed by night tables and hiding small rectangular windows just underneath. This is where I would often hide and wait for him to come home. If not there, then off to the side in the closet where he kept his vast collection of ties. Each time, like a sort of sermon, he would pull out one tie in particular and tell me the story of how I came up in the world, spitting on his new favorite tie. My father was a sharp dresser, with shine shoes, cufflinks, and ties always prepared for the day ahead. When he wasn't at work, he was usually at home cooking up something tasty. He was a phenomenal cook. When I was young, he'd often make us dishes like beef stew, eggplant parmesan, goulash, or the best hamburger helper you could ever imagine. He fried fish and roasted chicken. He baked cookies with us during Christmas, and every year we'd leave a plate out for Santa. Christmas was the best at our condo. I can't remember a single Christmas when my parents were together, but I remember putting up Christmas decorations and playing in the snow at Sumac Court. It was my favorite time of the year. My dad also used to throw down for Easter, which was the second best time of the year. I remember visiting the local farm stores in April with shops decked out in pastel and covered in Easter eggs and chocolate. Growing up in Jersey meant that there were farms involved in almost everything we did and I absolutely loved it. My dad used to take me to a place called Paul's Farm, not far from where we lived. Other days, we'd go for fun, specialized visits to family farms to pick strawberries or cabbage, just about whatever was in season. We'd often frequent farmer's markets, flea markets, and whatever secondhand small town digs we could get our hands into. I grew up with one foot always on the wild side, thanks to my dad. He taught me to swim, fish, ride a bike, golf, and play basketball. Between River Shark minor league games in Camden and golf course visits in Philly, I always had my schedule full and my feet firmly stuffed into two small, scuffed-up 
pairs of sneakers. My dad loved all of these things. He was a very active North Philly boy. He grew up loving baseball, basketball, football, and just about any sports game he and my uncle could sneak their way into. Baseball was his main love, though. He played for quite some time. When my brother was young, he coached a few of his sports teams, too. Well, you'll have to ask him for the stories about those. My dad was a diehard Eagles fan, a Phillies fan, and a Sixers fan. He was a true Philadelphian, though he too was partially raised in Jersey by his big brother and sister-in-law after his mother died. My dad was the son of Cecil and Lowe Sr. and Shirley Catherine Struthers. My grandfather and grandmother were both funeral home directors. My grandfather was a mortician and postal service man while my grandmother was a businesswoman and teacher. My father was 15 years younger than his older brother, and 14 when his mom died, after a long battle with multiple sclerosis that shaped his childhood and the rest of his life. He went to Hampton University, where he studied engineering first, then business. Shortly after he left school, he met my mother and raised my sister before my brother was brought into the world. They were together for roughly 14 years. At the tail end of their time together came me. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Their small actions, but truly help to expand the audience and help us connect with the right people. For more information about my practice, you can find me at taylorshirley.com. That's T-A-Y-L-A-R-S-H-I-R-L-E-Y. Or Taylor Shirley on social media platforms. I'll also be spending a lot of time at readheritage.com and at Reed Heritage on Instagram, where you can find my business, Heritage, a lifestyle brand and community centering Black, Indigenous, and POC narratives through the lens of slow living. Thank you so much for being here, and until next time, be well.